Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So I'd like to start by reading a poem. It felt love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. And that's Hafiz. So how did the rose ever open its heart? How do we open our hearts? How do we come to silence, stillness, quiet, and ease? How do we risk it? How do we find that inner beauty, that radiating inner beauty? How do we get there? And what do we need to get there? What's the encouragement of light? against our being? What does it take to soar inside, to find that light within? It's the question, you know, and you come to practice. The question of how, how does this happen? How does this work? And um, let me ask you another question. On this. So question one is, how do we allow this beautiful light to shine from within? How do we access it? How do we feel it? How do we embody it? What does it take to be present with this and hold it and feel it? Meditation's one answer, right? Stillness of mind, concentration. I was at a class yesterday at um, Insight LA and maybe I'll talk more about it. And the teacher was really talking about how a concentrated mind radiates joy, sweetness, peace, ecstasy, happiness. This is still mind, a natural state. But let me ask you a question and be honest with me. Which would you rather do? Go out for coffee and chat? <laughs> or meditate for an extra hour. <laughs> All right, who wants to go for coffee? <laughs> right? <laughs> Me too. So what is it that gets in the way? Why is it easier to go for coffee and talk, which I want to do too, than to sit for an hour? How come? What's that about? I see people are raising their hands. Does anybody want to say? You want to say? It's yes. We're not focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on something externally, like talking to someone else. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a good one. Yes. Are we doing beings? If we like to do things, doing. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a good one. We're doing beings. That's for sure. Yeah. I would say it's the same reason. I'd rather have chocolate cake than work out at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Well, I think it's connection with others. If you're yeah. With someone else. Yes. There's a connection, and so I, I don't know if they're mutually exclusive, meditating and connecting with others. But I suppose if I had the choice between sitting with myself, sitting with someone else, that would help me sort of 
share some of their concerns, I want to go with coffee. Yeah, and and you bring up a good point because it's um, natural and healthy to want to connect and really have meaning and connection with another person. Our brains need it. We're social beings. You know, we're a tribe from the very beginning. Um, so there's nothing wrong with wanting to go out to coffee rather than sitting for that hour, right? It's actually um, fills a very um, natural drive. And that's probably why the Buddha says when you're practicing, you're going against the stream. You know, you're going against something, against a current. Um, and this part of Sangha and um, practice is very important to community, sharing, connecting, connecting from the heart is critical. And silence, quiet, stillness, and cultivating concentration, also critical, and yet so hard to do against the stream, right? Against the stream. Um, and it yet, it's what separates us from other groups and other organizations and clubs and things like that is that we sit in silence together, even when it's difficult. And we do it to find that beautiful light within, that stillness within, who we really are, to get a deeper knowledge. So what gets in the way of practice in sitting still is generally an active mind, a mind that chatters, and a mind that likes to judge, evaluate, measure, tell us if we're getting an A or a D, or a D minus or an F, right? A judge that doesn't let us alone, a critic. And sometimes when we sit quietly and the mind gets very still, this voice gets amplified, really amplified, and starts to let us know how much we need to be better, to be okay, and improve. Have you had one of those? Right. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why we don't want to sit and sit for a long time, is that it's hard to combat that voice, that chatter inside, that evaluating mind. Probably keeps therapists in business, <laughs> bars full, and um, lots of plastic surgeons very wealthy. We've got to be better. We've got to be more. We're not enough. More better enough. Not you, not now, and not in this moment. And it's really, I've found, very important to look at this chatter in the mind, this voice, and see it for what it really is. I even wrote a song about it today, and I may even sing it to you, but we'll see. <laughs> so just a little bit about the judgmental mind. Anybody have one? <laughs> so this is what comes between you and the experience that you're having, this inner commentary, this inner chatter. It's a part of your mind. And it comes across in ideas, thoughts, beliefs, images, internal voices. And my inner critic um, doesn't always speak. Sometimes it's just a feeling. The gut tightening, muscles tightening, right? I always find my neck shrinking a little. 
usually it's an inner critic that's doing something, but the words are not quite there. It's pervasive. It happens all the time. It's quite invisible. And um, it lives not just in our thoughts and images, but in our body. You can really feel the judgment if you're paying close attention to your body sensations. When we're judging ourselves, there's usually tension and contraction in the body. There are a lot of good headaches from a judge. And the judge speaks to you. Uh, Madison Avenue really knows how to work, work it, right? So people, some of you may be in that business, right? Um, TV commercials, magazine ads, movies, um, they all tell you you're not good enough and why you need to buy their product to get better. And if you have their product, you will be better and life will be better in the next moment in the future, right? It comes across on the expression of your partner's face. Sometimes, you know, you're with a family member and you're making eye contact and there's a projection. They think I'm not good enough, right? I didn't do it well enough. Whatever it was you were supposed to do. You hear it in your supervisor's voice, your coworker. It could even be someone um, in the coffee shop, right? Um, this part of our mind sets standards and uses comparison. And we are always comparing ourselves with others to evaluate our worth. And um, the line I like about the judge is, we are in the courtroom of life and we're on trial. You know, we're measuring and evaluating. Um, and um, it's a very painful thought form, thought habit. It's a contracting one. And it gets in the way of just being here right now, just being, being here now with this moment, with the joy and beauty that's here and the sweetness of life. Because this pushing, pushing, craving to be better is, um, it's that itch that can never get scratched, you know? And how do you sit still for an hour if this itch is happening, if this push and this drive? Um, and, um, very often it creeps in and it becomes the lens in which we see ourselves and our experience. And I think a lot of you know this may be more, the women in the room, sometimes you get dressed in the morning and the judge is getting dressed with you. You look in the mirror, right? And oh, this is too tight. And if I had, you know, a little more height and my hair was different. No matter what kind of hair you have, you need the other kind. <laughs> the tendency for this judge is to, we talked about using comparison, um, and to kind of devalue and trivialize your present experience, your light, your joy, who you think you are, who you would like to be, the things you love and are interested. You know, it will always evaluate. You're doing worse, you're doing better. Um, and it's very hard to have that aliveness, that freshness, that enthusiasm in life when we're comparing and judging. It's like a clamp, it clamps down. Um, sometimes we'll just, there's this inner dialogue watching the pluses and minuses of our behavior, you know, keeping track, keeping score. And we'll also watch others as well that way. When it's active in us, we'll project it out. And sometimes I just hear myself um, unconsciously evaluating everything around me, people and places. And, and I know it's just that thing that's on. It's the switch is on. It's an old habit form. And it starts very young. 
um, we all remember that time when a loved one, a family member, um, you know, I remember once, just it could be something very simple, being so enthusiastic um, with my mom when I was a little girl about I Love Lucy and just going on and on about I Love Lucy. Wasn't this the best thing since apple pie? And my mom just turned and looked at me. She didn't mean it. And she went, that is just classless. You know, it was like, it was just, that is just, who is like Lucille? That is just dumb stuff, you know? And I remember just being so crushed by that, like, you know? And right, she didn't know. And if she knew, she'd never do it. But um, we learned that there's so much ouch, there's so much vulnerability in our environment. So we become the judge inside. We begin to evaluate to protect ourselves from being evaluated, right? We do the job that our parents and teachers and ministers and all other people in our life, and, and it will just take over. It can become this internal voice about what we need to experience, how we experience it, and what the experience means. Um, and it will kind of clamp down on this natural ability to grow and expand and to shine and open like that rose with the sun. Yeah? It will kind of cloud that sun. So, um, so I'll, I'll read a little bit about what is a judge. And I had a thought about it, but I can't remember now. So it's like it can become like a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. But that's also a thought, who you think you are. You see, these things are very impermeable. They're not really filled with much of a self. It's, an, it's a protective, defensive habit pattern. Um, but if we're unconscious, we believe it. It's God if we're unconscious. It has spoken, right? Mm -hmm. If you're merged with it and there isn't mindfulness present, it's 100% true. And it will say anything to you. I mean, you know, uh, waking up in the morning, this morning, uh, the mind will just chatter. The mind will say, oh, it's so great to come to um, this Dharma group and be able to share and talk. How exciting. And then the next moment, it's like, why are you giving a talk? Who are you? You know, and if I, if you believe it, if there isn't mindfulness present, right? I could stay in bed and not come, you know, right? And so, so the mindfulness really needs to be present to be able to hear thoughts as thoughts, know thoughts as thoughts, and um, get the Velcro, that stickiness, out of our lives um, that, that really clamps down. Um, you know, the judge can be like a counselor, an authority figure, and a yardstick to measure your practice. Um, and um, it, it can constantly be measuring the self-worth. And that's why also besides mindfulness practice, we need a lot of compassion practice because this doesn't go away very quickly. It's a lifelong project. You know, it will be here for a while. But the mindfulness can pierce it and compassion can hold it. Right? And that's why we work like this with concentration, compassion, and loving kindness. So um, you, we wouldn't have survived adulthood without a judge, right? We need 
that inner voice that says, um, you know, if you're in third grade and you're, and you're in the class, that says, even if you're feeling like your teacher is a ninny in the moment, you, you're better off when you don't shout to your teacher, you stupid ninny, stop teaching English now, right? You know, we need this to survive and conform and be part of society, or else who knows what we do, right? I personally would never get out of my pajamas. That would be one thing I could tell you, right? And who knows how else we wouldn't be able to conform. Um, so it keeps us from resting in that moment, this moment now, here, now, just settling in. And uh, a lot of people will think, well, you know, you need to have an inner critic, right? If you get to work 20 minutes late and you don't have the project for the divorce, for the divorce. <laughs> I'll see what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> For the boss, right? Uh, <laughs> hmm. yeah. uh, you need a critic. You need some part of you that says, pull it together to keep your job, right? Um, or you've gained some weight and you need a critical piece that says, uh, time to put away the chocolate cake. That's true. We need to be able to observe and, and, and evaluate in a sense of helping ourselves do the right thing, but you can let go of that negative charge, that pull down, right? You got to work 20 minutes again, and you did not complete the report, and you had chocolate cake, right? Can you know the tone, right, that really pulls you down? This is the part that isn't in service, um, doesn't help, doesn't work, and yet we go there. It's a natural um, go-to. So here are some things we say to ourselves, ourselves, how, who we love so much, right? But we um, definitely say some of these things. I can't believe you made that comment. You better not let that happen again. If you don't get started now, you'll never amount to anything, right? You blew it. Should I go on, right? Uh, no one will ever be interested in you. Don't date. You're too fat and you're out of shape. You'll never be a success. It's about time you got that right. I told you you didn't have a chance. Oh, you think you're so smart, huh? You ate all that? I can't believe it. Only lazy people sleep in. There's chores to do. You have a hard time accepting criticism, right? You're neglectful. You're a neglectful parent. That's selfish. You don't deserve, do you see the flavor, right? And we'd say these things sometimes, when we're more enlightened, we don't say it as clearly, like as we've learned. <laughs> You've been in therapy a little, right? But it's still there in some way. It's still there, you know, it's like the smarter we get, the smarter the critic gets. <laughs> it's true, it's true. So, um, so, uh, what does this have to do about meditation practice, 
And the spiritual path, the path, um, the Dharma path, well, the critic comes there with us too, right? And we could develop a spiritual superego, as we like to say, or critic. Um, you were really thinking too much in that meditation. You didn't get any concentration, right? Um, at work, somebody said to me recently, a therapist said to me, uh, well, you know, one of the moms took your mindfulness class and she came in with her daughter. And she said, she brought her daughter into therapy because she said her daughter wasn't eating mindfully. <laughs> the critic could, will go anywhere, right? It will go anywhere. It will be a new lens in which to judge ourselves and others. How mindful are we? The critic could have a field day with that. I was at a meeting recently where we practiced some mindfulness, and there were a couple of people shouting at each other, you're not being mindful. <laughs> I'm not joking. And um, a lot of teachers will um, talk about um, shaving their head, going to the monasteries in Thailand and Burma, and the monks and nuns will have meetings where they'll say, you didn't wash your dish, you weren't mindful. you know, Or you left your things out, that's not mindful. So the critic could attach to mindfulness, and then it's going to be a big excedrin headache, right? It's, it's going to be tough to be mindful, because mindfulness is inherently not judgmental, right? It doesn't have a judgment. That's the definition of mindfulness, is um, it's an awareness that doesn't evaluate. It's just awareness. It's, it, and it's got a very loving quality and positive regard. But boy, you could get a spiritual critic going. Why didn't you wake up early? Why wasn't your mind still? What about your posture? Um, you should go on that retreat. If you don't go on that retreat, if you don't read those books, forget it. You won't get enlightened. You know, you could, This dialogue could come and really undermine um, practice. It could undermine sitting. So I wrote this poem based on all the things I've ever said um, when I've gone to sit over the last 40 years, whether <laughs> on retreat or at home on my cushion. You could sing it. I will sing it, yeah, yeah, because, because my critic is going to let me sing it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, besides, you'll only criticize me silently. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, <laughs> All right, so things I have said on the cushion. The spiritual judge meditates. You will never be the Buddha. So quit trying to sit still. Who are you kidding? You do not fit the bill. And you simply have no will. Please stop trying to stop thinking. Your mind is like a shopping mall. <laughs> and you know this is true. So please stop trying. Joseph Goldstein would laugh at you if he knew. Who are you kidding? Everyone can see you squirming on your zafu. <laughs> Pema Chodron would die laughing if she knew.
that you are trying to reach nirvana, like the Dalai Lama, or the person sitting next to you. She looks enlightened, while you only feel frightened. <laughs> Why can't you be more like her? Her posture is so straight. She has not moved her body. You simply do not rate. She looks so peaceful, and you will never be like that. So slumped over on your meditation mat. <laughs> you will never sit up straight. You simply do not rate. Please do not repeat your shopping list again <laughs> until they ring that bell and we are out of meditation hell. <laughs> because you cannot do this, you think too much and you are sleepy. This choice is so very creepy and not for you. No, not for you. Your mother would agree with this assessment, too. <laughs> so why would we meditate for an extra hour, right? We should go for coffee. <laughs> no, we should go for margaritas. No. <laughs> so meditation amplifies, it amplifies this little wormy tendency we have. I remember sitting um, at the beginning in my 20s, um, I went to this big ashram, and I, you drive up for a couple hours in the bus and fight all the New York traffic and check yourself in a room with 15 other women, you know, <laughs> march down to the hall and get the cushion. You're sitting in this large hall, and there's the guru of the hour, and um, sitting there, and all I could think of were three things. What were they baking in the bakery? How does not sleep? Or why wasn't I enlightened enough and I'm not good enough, right? And other people look like they're meditating. Why weren't I? You know? And this went on for a long time. It just went on for as long as it goes on. And then one day, it doesn't, it stops. Like everything else, if you sit long enough, you sit through it, it all ceases. It all ends. But you have to have the faith to get through that, and the encouragement. You have to have that light, you know, just like Hafiz. How does the rose get there to this bloom, right? It allows in that light, and the light is the faith and the practice. So um, I will end there. The faith to allow ourselves to sit when we'd rather have coffee. The faith to hear that chatter and not identify with it, not attach to it like Velcro, to allow it to come and go. 
the faith to know that your mind is like the person's mind sitting next to you and there's one mind and minds chatter and they evaluate. The faith to know that you have the capacity for stillness beyond that chattering mind and that beyond that, when the mind is concentrated, there's sweetness of light inner light that's unconditional, not based on how much you do, who you are, what you do, if you're good enough. That's your light, and you're good enough for it. It's there. And that's why we sit together. Right? That's why we come and sit, even when we're itchy and irritable and cranky, we come and sit anyway. So just taking a moment, maybe closing your eyes, and finding your breath. And giving yourself with each breath permission to feel kindness towards yourself. Almost like you're giving yourself a kindness bath from head to toe, from the top of your head all the way down to the neck and shoulders and torso, hips, legs, just bathing yourself in kindness, unconditional kindness. Just like a way a rose receives the light, it doesn't have to be good enough. It just turns towards the light. the light of your kindness to yourself, your compassion for yourself, and the compassion from everyone around you. Bathed in light. And this light is also the gift of meditation, of concentration, of loving kindness. And as you bathe yourself in this light, send some again to people in the room. Those in front of you, those behind you, to your side. When you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes. So it, it does take a village to be this mind, this critic. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.